Good evening to you, church. Peace be with you all. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we have a longer passage than usual. Uh, we'll begin in verse 37 through verse uh, 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we look at these disciples and so often, Lord, we um, can wonder how could they be so foolish, yet Lord... Each and every single one of us, God, um, we are the same as them, Lord. We are so foolish so often. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us today, that he would reveal to us the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Father, you are so great. You are so mighty. You are so majestic. And, Lord, in our sin... In our blindness, we just fail to see your glory and your majesty. So open up our eyes to your beauty today through your word, by the power of your spirit, and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, At this time, the disciples, their life is like a country song. Um, The highs are really high, and the lows are really low. Um, Yesterday we looked at one of those highs, today we get to see um, not the brightest day in the lives of these disciples. 
And we also get to get a glimpse into the side of Jesus that we rarely see. Um, Jesus is frustrated. He's about had it with his disciples. Um, Today's story is almost the opposite of what was happening in last week's texts. Last week's text. Um, Last week we saw how Jesus took three of his disciples and they went up on the mountain and Jesus prayed. And as they were up there, something amazing happened. Um, Jesus peeled back the cover and he allowed his disciples, he showed his disciples who he really is. He was transformed into a glorious state. And they saw the glimpse of the realities of the kingdom of God. They saw the glory of the kingdom of God that is covered up, that is invisible to us because of our fleshly um, world, our physical world. Um, and the disciples, we, we saw that they did not want to, they didn't want this experience to end. Everything in that moment was right. If there was anything wrong going on in their lives, in that moment, in the presence and in the glory of Jesus, they forgot it. And they wanted to be in that glory. Peter did not want to leave. He's like, Lord, it is good for us here. Let's build three huts. Let's pop up a few tents and let's just stay here forever. Who needs that world? This is great. On the mountain, everything was right, everything was good, everything was perfect. And so going into our text today, as they come down from the mountain, in the valley, the complete opposite is happening. Everything is going wrong in the valley. That reflects oftentimes how our lives are. On the mountaintop experiences, everything is great, and then... We have moments in our life of these valleys where things are dark, where things are hard. And so Jesus comes down, and there's a crowd. There's a lot of commotion. Um, The Gospel of Mark tells us that in the middle of this great crowd are Jesus' nine remaining disciples. And the crowd gathered because unlike what usually happens this time, they're there for another reason. The disciples have failed. They failed to cast out a demon out of a boy. The disciples lost their touch. And you can just imagine them standing over this boy, commanding this demon to leave over and over again. They're probably like, what's happening? This worked every other time. Why is this not working now? And the crowd is only getting bigger and bigger, and it's getting more embarrassing by the minute. And so we see this contrast. Jesus and the other three come from this glorious experience where everything is right in the presence of God, back into the valley, back into the reality of a broken world where instead of seeing the glory of Jesus, they see oppression, possession of darkness and evil on humanity. And as we read, We see that this man, he sees Jesus, and he cries out to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. He could feel the pain of the father, and here's what's wrong with with the kid. Verse 39, 
he says, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. It's a horrific image. Um, The demon was tormenting him. He was torturing him. From the Gospel of Mark, we see that it was trying to kill him. It would throw him into water, trying to drown him. It would throw him into fire, trying to burn him. It's just a horrific, horrific scene. This explains the desperation of the father. This is his only child, and he is crying out. He is begging Jesus to deliver the boy from this mess. And none of the Gospels were giving a reason why this happened to the kid, why the child was tormented by the demon. But we know that Satan, he hates the creation of God. And through the fall of humanity, Satan has this access to humanity to deceive, to tempt, to condemn, to spiritually and physically harass. Apostle Peter says that the devil is an enemy. He's an adversary. And he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may destroy, who he may devour. And this boy was a victim of this demonic oppression. And so this, man's, this man tells Jesus, Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. And the disciples, they probably tried long and hard. They gave their best effort, long enough to gather a crowd. And as Jesus sees what is happening, and as he hears this man, you see Jesus expresses frustration with his disciples. And he gives them this open rebuke. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you and bear with you. And at first it may seem like, Jesus, why are you so frustrated? Um, what's, what's the reasoning for your frustration? And for us to understand why Jesus is so annoyed with his disciples, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 9. In, ver- in verse 1 we read, And he called the twelve together, And he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so we see uh, before this power was given to the disciples, uh, they were simply students. They walked with Jesus. They observed Jesus. But they did not take part in his Ministry. They were just observers of everything that was happening. And in the beginning of chapter 9, we see that Jesus commissions them onto the ministry. They partner up with Jesus, uh, and they join him in this ministry. And he gives them a gift. He gives them power. He gives them authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. This was a gift to them from Jesus. Before, they did, they did not possess this power and authority. They could try to cast out demons all day long, and they would not be able to do it. But now Jesus gave them this power and this gift over the kingdom of darkness. And we see later on that 
practice this gift. They, re- they came back to Jesus after their mission rejoicing because they would cast out demons. And here's why Jesus is frustrated with them. It is because he gave them this power and authority over all demons. We see it's over all demons. There's not a group of demons that Jesus is like, you do not have power and authority over them. No, he gave them power over all demons. Yet something went wrong. They were not able to cast out this demon. And Jesus puts the blame on them. The problem is not in the power and the authority of Jesus. In the gift that Jesus has given them, the power is in them. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you and bear with you? And so I just want to spend our time to and, and look how they have failed. In what areas they failed. And we have two things that Jesus particularly points out to us that went wrong. He says that they are faithless and they are twisted. Now, <laughs> to tell someone they are twisted, it's a pretty serious accusation. Imagine what someone has to do to you or someone else, like for you to come up to them and tell them you're twisted. That's to do something pretty bad. And notice Jesus calls the entire generation of his time faithless and twisted. And he throws his disciples in with this generation. And when we think of this word, to be twisted, it means to be unsound, to be disturbed. You're not operating as you should. And that is exactly what Jesus has in mind here. The King James Version translates this, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Twisted, perverse. This word means uh, it's, it's, it's to go against what is decent and what is reasonable. It's to turn aside from the right path. You were meant for a particular purpose, yet you were distorted. You were perverted. You were twisted off the right path. You're doing something you did not, you, you were not meant to do. You're actually doing something opposite. Jesus says, this is what happened to the nine disciples who could not heal this boy. They were given power and authority over all demons. That was their mission entrusted to them by Jesus. Yet they could not exercise that authority. Somehow they got off the path. And so what is it that got perverted and distorted in them? And that leads us to the second part of this rebuke. Jesus tells them they were faithless. They were twisted because they were faithless. They could not cast out this demon because they were faithless. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, they tell us the same story. And in the Gospels, uh, in both of those Gospels, the disciples, they actually ask Jesus, why could we not cast out the demon? Like, what happened, Jesus? Why could we not do it? And in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus tells them, because of your little faith. You lacked faith. And 
when we first observe the situation, it seems like they had plenty of faith. They agreed to cast out the demon because they believed they can. And so that's why they tried. They would not agree to do this in front of the whole entire crowd if they did not have faith that they were able to do this. And so at first sight, it seems as though they had plenty of faith. And they're probably thinking, the problem is not with us. The problem is with this authority and power that Jesus gave to us. It probably expired or something. And when they ask Jesus why, he tells them it's their lack of faith. Their faithlessness is the root issue. And again, the question is, how did that faithlessness manifest itself? And we find that answer in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus tells them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so here is where we find the problem. The disciples lacked prayer. They lacked the discipline of prayer. Let's think about it. How does lack of prayer display faithlessness? How does our lack of prayer display faithlessness? And I would say lack of prayer, it displays both faith and faithlessness. When we do not pray, we have faith and we have faithlessness. We have faith in ourselves and we have faithlessness in God. That's why the disciples had no problem agreeing and trying to cast out this demon They believed that they could do it, but that faith was in themselves. The only problem, though, is that they forgot that the power and authority to cast out these demons, it was not of them, but of God. And prayer is the greatest display of faith. It is a display of dependency and reliance on God. Prayers when we say, Father, I cannot do this on my own. I understand my weakness. I am powerless. I am incapable to do this without you. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. And just imagine how the disciples felt when Jesus first commissioned them. They were probably like, what? Us? Cast out demons and heal? You're giving this power to us? Jesus, did you forget who we are? We were fishermen. We were tax collectors. We are nobodies. We do not deserve this. You are entrusting us with this great authority? They had this sense of unworthiness dependence and trust in God, understanding that they have been given a responsibility that is much greater than them. They will never measure up to the gift that God has given them. They were just conduits. They were servants of the great and mighty God who was working in power through them. Yet between then and now, something shifted the childlike dependence, the childlike trust in God, 
this understanding that they had a responsibility that is greater than them, it turned into self-reliance. Well, we must be worthy. We must be great after all. Why else would God give us this gift? The gift of God and his power, this authority turned from treasure to complacency. They somehow thought the power is not from God, but from themselves. And to stop praying while thinking that God is going to continue working through you is the greatest display of faithlessness in God and faith in yourself. They had faith in themselves and faithlessness in God. As soon as they were presented the opportunity, you need a demon cast out, of course we'll do it. I got you, man, just watch. And it was an utter failure. And so Jesus' rebuke is actually very appropriate as he tells them, oh, faithless and twisted generation. You have perverted, you have twisted the way of God by believing in yourself and not him. By forgetting that you are mere conduits of the glory of God. And the reason why Jesus makes it not just a disciple problem, but a generation problem, is because that is the natural position of every human heart. That's the position of our hearts. Not only is the culture and generation of Jesus' time faithless and twisted, but every generation since the fall is in the same position, including even our own. And just looking around us, these two words, they summarize very well what is happening around us. We see faithlessness and twistedness. Humanity has failed to recognize and understand who we are. What we were created to be. It's a failure to believe what God has said about who we are. At its core, humanity does not believe that we are created in the image of God to worship and enjoy him. We are gods to ourselves. We are all fighting for greatness amongst ourselves. We are fighting for self-worship, self-adoration. We are a generation obsessed with ourselves. And that is fruit of faithlessness. And this unbelief, it began with the first humans. They failed to trust God. It's Adam and Eve. They failed to trust God at his word. They failed to um, trust in him with childlike faith. They believed the lie of the serpent. And what was the serpent's lie? You don't need God. You can become self-reliant, self-sustaining, all-knowing. You can become like God. And from that point, after Adam and Eve, they bought into that lie. That's how every human being thinks. 
We are incredibly self-sufficient, self-reliant. We think we know best when it comes to matters of life. Just look at our culture for, look at a few examples. We clearly know what God has declared through nature and through his word. Yet when it comes to gender, culture says we know better than God. When it comes to sexuality, we know better than God. When it comes to marriage, we know better than God. When it comes to salvation, we know better than God. Somehow we think that with our darkened mind and our darkened heart, we know better than the great and mighty creator of heaven and earth. This generation, it does not trust, it does not believe, it does not care about God's word. It holds it in contempt and disrespect, and the result is perversion of all the ways that God has made known to us, and it's very evident all around us. The world does not realize that even the very breath that they are breathing, that every single day is a gift of God, a mercy of God to them. They do not even acknowledge this fact. That is why Jesus calls them a faithless and perverse generation. Lack of faith in God leads to perversion of everything that God has established. And for us in the church, it's easy to point at the culture and show all of the issues that they have. But look how closely Jesus ties the faithlessness of the disciples with the faithlessness of the generation. He puts them in the same bucket. He identifies them together. He's like, you're part of that twisted and faithless generation. And that's because it is so easy for us to fall back into our self-reliant ways. Even as children of God, we do it all the time. And as Christians, though, we do it in a very pietistic, very righteous way. We justify our self-reliance. We make it look holy and righteous. Now, I don't know if Jesus gave you a gift that he gave to the disciples. Um, I don't know if he gave you the gift to um, have, if he gave you the power to cast out demons. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But there are gifts. There are responsibilities. There is authority that God has given to every single one of us. The gift of salvation itself. How often do we treat the grace of God with contempt? Forgetting that our eternity has been forever changed by the work of God. How often do we rely on ourselves and think it is our righteousness before God that, er, that, that, that makes us stand before him? How about in our responsibilities as singles, as families, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our life together as God's people, in our ministries, in, in the workplace, God is not telling us to be more self-assured. 
He's not calling us to believe in yourself more. He's not calling us to trust yourself. God is not telling us to get it together. The power is in you. Even though that's what we think Christianity is a lot of times. No, God is calling us to live out all of our responsibilities, our giftings, with complete reliance and faith in God. Just like he gave a responsibility and authority to the apostles, to the disciples, to go and heal and cast out demons, God has given us authority and responsibility to every single one of us. And he also gives us the power to work in those areas, to do what he commanded us to do. One of the greatest ways we know if we're doing it in faith and trust in God, or if we are trying to live out those responsibilities and faith and trust in ourselves, is by looking at our prayer life. Lack of prayer shows faith in self. It is unbelief in God. We're trying to do it on our own, on our own strength. When we do not pray, when we do not cast ourselves before God, as we try to accomplish what God has set before us, we are saying, I believe in myself. I've got the power. I can do this on my own. While prayer shows faith and dependence on God. And somehow, some, sometimes it's hard to distinguish. And, and sometimes it's hard to, to, to look at a person who is confident in themselves, confident that they can uh, do what God has set before and call it faithlessness. A lot of times we call that faith. Yet it is the clearest form of faithlessness. They have faith in themselves and not in God. Where's your prayer life? Just like the disciples, we often forget how unworthy we are to receive his mercy. His grace, his power to accomplish what he has called us to do. The disciples have failed the mission to cast out demons because they failed in them, in the, they, they had faith in themselves and failed to trust in God. Our life as a Christian, as Christians, is to take seriously I'm sorry, I've forgot a page in a printer. <laughs> I think I, I was going to read some text. I think I'm sure I have it in here. First, let's look at the apostles. Um, 
And later as they were commissioned, as, as after, after the resurrection, as they continued their in ministry, how their own hearts have changed. Paul, he found himself in a place of weakness. There was something that was bothering him in his flesh. And he saw that issue, he saw that problem as something that prevented him to be greater, to be more um, dependable, to, be, to do more for the ministry of God. And he says in Second uh, Corinthians 12, verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so, we see in our text, we see this fight. Yeah, thank you. We see in our text, we see this, we see this struggle. Jesus is fighting for the, for the disciples to not trust in themselves, but trust in Christ. And we see that they are trying to trust in themselves, and they think that their effectiveness in ministry is through their own greatness. And just like the disciples, so often along the way we lose. When we, God has done so much for us. We have nothing, we, we have no claim, we have no credit. And what God has done for us, to the positions that he called us, to the great call and the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. Yet just like the disciples, somewhere along the way, we lose the awe of this calling. We lose this childlike reliance on God. We begin to take it for granted. And we become self-assured. I got this. I understand the Christian life. I'm mature now. I don't need the power and the greatness of Jesus. Christian life is a life of great duty and responsibility. And it was never meant to be lived out on our own strength, but only in the power and the strength of God. And that power can be ours only when we stop relying on ourselves and become completely independent on God. Paul had a weakness, like I said. He asked God to free, it, free him, free him for it, from it. And God didn't do it. He said, that, that weakness is there in your life so that my power may be known through you. We see this also in Philippians 2, verse 12. 
Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here we see this responsibility that is given to us by God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And how do we work it out? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, when God calls us to obedience, he knows we are weak. He knows we're fragile. He knows we can't do it on our own. And when we believe that we can, it becomes a block for God's power to be displayed in our lives. He knows our weakness. Psalm 103, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He, rem he remembers that we are dust. In Isaiah 40, 28, we read, Have you not known? Have you not heard? That the Lord is everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth, it fails, it faints, and is weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Church, as God calls us to our responsibilities, as he gives us authority in the areas of life that he has given to us, he does not expect us to do it on our own strength. He calls us to see our weakness. He calls us to confess our inability to fulfill that responsibility. And he calls us to himself, the one who creates the world and does not grow weary. Yesterday, uh, a group of, group of guys and ladies, we, uh, we were planting some grass out there and that field, it, it beat us up. We were weary. We were exhausted. Our strength, it was failing. I just wanted to come home and just crash. God creates the heavens and the earth, and not an ounce of weariness. He doesn't faint. He's not exhausted. And he calls us who are weary, who do faint, who are exhausted to come to him, to cast ourselves in prayer on the God who knows our weakness, and he delights to make his strength known to his children, to people like us. And so church, when we do not confess our weakness, but we stand in our own strength and we trust in ourselves, we block the power of God from moving in our lives. That's what happened to the disciples. Going back to Luke, uh, we read in verse 42, 
And Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit, and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. If the failure of the disciples, if it made the crowds doubt the power of Jesus, the power of majesty of Jesus displayed through the healing of this boy just made those doubts vanish. And we see that they're all excited. They marvel. They were astonished at this power of Christ displayed. But in the midst of this excitement, Luke wants us to focus and see something else. Look at the second part of verse 43. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So, check this out. In the moment of this glory, in the moment of this fame, what does Jesus do? What would we do? What would the disciples do? The disciples, um, if they would have healed the boy, if we would have healed the boy, as we see all these people marvel, we would be basking in the glory and the fame. That's what we would be doing. And somehow we would uh, make this basking, um, we would make it righteous, we would make it holy. Yet look at Jesus. While they are marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. In this exciting moment, Jesus has his eyes set on the mission that is before him. In this moment of strength and power, Jesus is not blinded by fame. Jesus has his priorities straight. He knows what's expected of him. He knows that before him is the cross. Before him is weakness, it is shame, and it is suffering. And how is Jesus able to have this kind of clarity and not be blinded by success? How is Jesus able to keep his eyes on the path that is before him and understand that true success will come through weakness and shame? Let's go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. We see the answer how Jesus is able to do this. Now, about eight days later, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying. While his disciples were in the valley, not praying, not having faith in God, but having pointless faith in themselves, Jesus is on the mountain praying, putting all his faith 
and his father, submitting his will to the will of his father. That is how Jesus was able to have such clarity. In the middle of success, he is not relying on himself, but continues to rely on the father and the hard path that the father has set before him. He's not saying, are you sure, God? Are you sure I'm to walk down the path of weakness and shame and suffering? Maybe this is better. Look at this excitement. Look what is happening. Church, how much more we who are so frail and weak and so easily deceived need to pray and put our trust in God. And yet so often we put prayer away at the first sight of success. Things are hard. We begin to pray. Things get better. Success comes. And we put prayer aside. We deceive ourselves thinking that somehow we are great. Somehow we are strong. Somehow we caused this success. We don't need you, God, anymore. You've got this. How often do we do that? After the failure that the disciples had, you would think they'd be humbled and learn from this lesson. Yet look what happens next. Verse, 30, verse uh, 46. We read that an argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. We see that the words of God, words of Jesus did not sink in. The disciples are still full of self-reliance, self-grandeur, self-glory. They're competing amongst themselves who's better, who's greater. But Jesus, knowing their reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And who receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And so as they're arguing who's better, who's greater, Jesus takes a little child, sets him up before them, and he says, this is an example of greatness. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. No, Jesus is not saying that greatness is immaturity. He isn't calling us, he's not calling the disciples to be childish. He's calling us to be childlike. And if we've been around children, we know that children are good at trusting. They're good at depending. My kids, they woke up this morning uh, specifically, my youngest, uh, Lucas, he woke up this morning. He had no doubt that his parents would give him food, that they would dress him, that they will care for him. There's nothing in the world that could put a doubt in his mind that his parents would not do that to him in the morning. He has full confidence and assurance he also has full confidence and assurance that he can't do it on his own. That he can't feed himself. That he can't dress himself. We're trying to be, have him be confident in the fact that he can dress himself, but he doesn't have it. It's like, no, you guys can do it. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Children are full of innocent dependence. They have this doubtless assurance 
and their parents. They would proudly say, I can't feed myself, I can't dress myself, but they can. And Jesus is saying, the one who depends and trusts God like these children is the greatest. He is calling them, he's calling us to stop boasting and to stop trusting in our greatness and our ability and to boast and trust in the greatness and the ability of God to say, I cannot cast this demon out, but I know who can. I don't know how to properly lead my family, but I know who can, and he has told me how to do it in his word, and I rely on him. I do not know how to share the gospel. I do not know how to love my neighbor who is hard to love, but I know who can. And I'm going to go to him, and his power will work through my weakness. A childlike faith, a childlike assurance. They failed to cast out the demon because they thought the power and greatness is found in them. Jesus is calling them to see that all they have to bring to the table is weakness. And trust that God will powerfully move through them to do what he called them to do. Church, Jesus is calling us to do the same. Have childlike faith. Don't be afraid to admit your weakness. Bring it before God in prayer. Trust in him. Admit with things that you struggle. And watch him move in power. Lastly, in our final verses, we have this very interesting scene. Jesus answer, uh, John answers Jesus and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him but he does, because he does not follow with us. Notice they didn't say he does not follow you, he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And we don't have a lot, a lot of time left to get into the full implications of this verse. But again, what we see here is a display of, of the pride of these disciples. Not only were they fighting among themselves for greatness, they also thought that they were great because they belonged to this group of people who got to got to uh, follow Jesus. All others were below them. They wanted spiritual exclusivity. They're not part of this group. They must be against us. And we see how the fact that this other guy, this other person was casting out demons, we see that this bothered them. They followed Jesus and they could not cast out the demon. And here's the guy who is not with them, not part of their crew. He's casting out demons. This has bothered them. If they fail to see that whoever they saw, they, do, they did not do it in their name. They did it in the name of Jesus. They trusted Jesus, they trusted his power, and so the demons fled. Church, we're so much alike. So often we're like these, these disciples, 
Again, we can sit here and judge them and laugh at at their immaturity and their obsession with greatness, but how often do we do the same? What is a reaction when we see success of others in ministry, in family, in work, success of other marriages? Does jealousy overtake us like it did these disciples? And what is our reaction when we see the success of others? Here's what we often do. The temptation is to strap on the boots, put your best foot forward, and prove that you are just as great and amazing as them. When we see others succeed, we do not want to show any weakness. Just like the disciples, we do not see glory and greatness and weakness. We see others' success and we look at them as enemies, not realizing that they too have been given this gift by God. So then the invitation this evening is, do you want to succeed? And the answer is yes. And the call is, Be weak, be childlike, stop trusting in yourself, stop walking in assurance of self, trust in God. Look how Christ worked in weakness. And when you do, watch him work through your weakness in his power. He will make it very evident to you. Church, here's a question I want to leave us with. How much of our failure in our God-given responsibility can we attribute to the fact that we fail to rely on God? How much of our failure, how much of our inability to see God move in power in our life is because of the fact that we stopped relying on God. Bring your weakness to him. He will move in power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, so often we are so blind to these situations. Lord, we're blinded by greatness, and so often, Lord, we want to live in your kingdom with the principles of this world. God, we so often want to bring our greatness to the table, our abilities to the table. And we ask you, Lord, to use us in power, and we give all these reasons why. Yet, God, you invite us to bring our weakness. And Father, we have all been given great responsibility As your children, we've been given this great privilege to be called sons and daughters of a great king. Lord, we've been given the responsibility of families, our marriages, our children, our ministries. Lord, you call us to obey and to live it out, live out our salvation with fear and trembling in obedience to you. And Father, so often we try to do it on our own strength. 
Lord, help us realize how huge this responsibility is, Father. And also, Lord, help us realize that you call us to do this not in our own strength, but in your power. So, Lord, let us not be ashamed of our weakness. May we be quick to confess our dependence on you. Father, may the success in our life be a product of many prayers. May the success in our life, God, be fruit of our dependence and reliance on you, God. Give us the mind of Christ. Lord, work in us and through us. May your power be evident in us, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.